Thank you, Calvin. Aloha. Aloha. Someone asked me a minute ago, so when was your first time to Hawaii? And I had to say, I really don't remember, because my parents brought me when I was really young, and I don't remember how old I was. But uh, uh, we're very happy to be here, and I say we because I'm here with the lovely Mrs. Bachelor. Uh, there's go at Karen. And they gave us these very pretty lays, and mine matched my shirt, and hers matches hers, but I have hay fever, so I gave mine to her. <laughs> and uh, you get more mileage out of your flowers that way. But uh, it's been wonderful to be here, and I will make no apologies by telling you, we came a couple days early, and I, I shared with the, the uh, Bible Army group, I said, I'd be delighted to come, but I'm bringing my wife, and I'm taking a couple of days off. And so we've done that, and it's just been wonderful. And so it's, uh, but it's great to be here with you as the Sabbath begins and to uh, be able to open God's Word. Um, you know, I think that uh, the, the focus of Army is really a great catalyst for revival. And, and the theme of really being soldiers in God's Army and the Bible being our ammunition, that's really what it's all about. And so uh, I wonder if we could just, if you don't mind, join me for just a moment in bowing your heads and let's ask for God's presence to be here. Dear Father, we'd like to add an additional prayer. And in this ne next segment where we direct our attention to your word and as the Sabbath approaches in this beautiful place, we pray that you will stir our hearts with your spirit. I ask, Lord, that you will be uh, present in this place that through the Holy Spirit you'll do what only you can do and speak to each heart individually. Help us to glorify you and to be transformed by your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, there was a little rumor that maybe what I'd be doing right now is sharing my testimony, and I hope you'll forgive me if I don't do that. Uh, the book is better than the movie. And so it's, it's in a book. <laughs> And, uh, you know, I, I've done that so many times, and my poor wife's here, and she's going, oh, heard <laughs> she's heard it, she's heard it, but um, really, the Lord laid something else on my heart. I was studying last night. Uh, actually, we have been listening to the programs because you're streaming, and so back at our room, we've got uh, internet, and I've been listening to some of the various speakers. We turned it up in the room. We've been listening, and it's uh, been wonderful that you're doing that. And so we appreciate uh, Brad and the work that he's doing, part of our Amazing Facts team. Um, there's a story in God's Word I'd like to direct your attention to. And if I were to title this message today, it would be A Loyal Soldier. And it comes to us from the second book of Samuel. Second Samuel. I'm going to start with the first verse. And um, some of it you're going to sense is familiar, but um, some is not. Now, just for the uh, sake of being practical right now, what is my quitting time? Don't say anything like as long as you want because I want to eat too. <laughs> and uh, so it's 5.30. Okay, thank you, Melody. I, I want it to be punctual. And... Uh, Sometimes I think we believe that the, uh, a mu musician is commended because he plays long rather than well. <laughs> and I think that the Holy Spirit can do a lot in five minutes if that's what he has to work with. This is the story of David's infamous sin with Bathsheba. And there has been uh, no shortage of messages that talk about David's sin, and typically it's used as an excuse for bad behavior. And I can't count how many times I've heard somebody say, well, we all sin, and look at David. Of course, usually those people don't spend seven days on their face repenting like David did. But we often like to cite, well, after all, you know, look how David fell. And it is true, we are all human, and we all sin. But I think in looking at this story, typically, we miss the real hero in the story. We we're so preoccupied and distracted with the um, despicable, despicable behavior of this great 
one of the greatest characters in the Bible, a type of Christ, David, that we miss who the real hero is. Verse 1, 2 Samuel 11. And it came to pass in the spring of the year, the time at which kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him. Wait a second. Who's the king, Joab or David? It says this is the time when kings are supposed to go out to battle, but what did the king do? He stayed home. David had reached the zenith of his power at this point. You look at the history of David, and even though he had his ups and downs being chased by Saul, he basically went from victory to victory, success to success. He was winning things politically. He was winning things uh, spiritually. Uh, he was winning things in military uh, perspective. And uh, God was with him everywhere he went. And then you get to this story. And it's just all kinds of problems follow after this. And it all begins with the time when kings go out to battle. It says, David stayed home. Now, I figured it's probably appropriate in an army meeting to talk about military issues. You know, one of the most common questions that we get at our Bible Answer Program is regarding Christians serving in the military. And... Uh, I'm not even going to delve into that right now because it, it, it's such a volatile subject that there's a whole branch of Seventh-day Adventists called Seventh-day Adventist Reformed that broke away from the main Seventh-day Adventist church back during World War I over the issue of involvement in the military. And of course, that was accentuated during World War II. And uh, well, I'll just get into it a little bit. I'll tell you, I, you know, I don't want to get, I can get so preoccupied with listening to myself that I lose track of time and I don't ever get to my subject. <laughs> I'm interested in what I have to say. <laughs> and so I get distracted. <laughs> but, um, I, you know, there's a great tension, and Christians have to be careful, Seventh-day Adventists have to be careful of uh, taking sort of a hypocritical position. I think we ought to be grateful, thankful, praise God, that we have a military. Because the freedoms we enjoy as a country, the freedoms we enjoy to circulate and to propagate the gospel are because those freedoms are defended at great sacrifice. But having said that, we all have different gifts. And it becomes often a real conflict when practicing Seventh-day Adventist Christians enlist in the military service without understanding what they're getting into. Now, having said that, I went to military school the first time I was five years old. As far as I know, you can look it up on the internet, not me, but Black Fox, it's spelled F-O-X-E, military school. It's closed now, but it was the military school for the movie stars kids in Los Angeles for about 50 years, 60 years. And my parents sent me there, and uh, I was five years old. Parents divorced at three, and so eventually they said, oh, how do we get Dougie and Falcon out of the way so we can get on with our lives? And so they sent me to a boarding school. And I still vividly re remember that. Went back to military school at New York Military Academy, which is still open. And it's um, where Donald Trump went. He was just ahead of me. Uh, well, he's quite a bit ahead of me, actually. <laughs> he was a senior, I think, when I was in elementary school. But... Um, but I've never been in the military. Son Daniel was in the Marines. Daughter Sheree was in the Army. So I'm just giving you some context. If you hear a bias, I just want you to know where it's coming from. Hopefully I'm giving you the truth, but just in case I'm uh, biased, and sometimes I am. Um, when you enter the military, Someone else is going to make your decisions for you. I think one of the biggest jokes in the world is when someone says, I'm going to join the military to get away from mom and dad's discipline. <laughs> I finally want to get out on my own. And boy, if you... <laughs> I just know from military school we had a rule for everything. And then our son going through Marine boot camp. And, and uh, we were there when he graduated. But you don't have the freedom to practice all your convictions. 
in a situation like that. Some are drafted, and of course you know about Terry Johnson and Desmond Doss, both friends, and that God can, God has his people there. So the Bible has an awful lot to say about soldiers in the military. And uh, of course we're not under a theocracy now, but uh, I think we need to praise God for the military. God doesn't like war, but God sometimes sends people to war. And if we are his soldiers, we need to be aware there is a war. Have you read the book, The Great Controversy? If you uh, say it in Spanish, it's El Gran Conflicto. There's a big battle. And David, they had the kingdom of Ammon. Everyone else was subjugated. They'd taken the kingdom. The capital was surrounded. And a siege could take a long time. And so David said, look, Joab, I haven't got time. You know, we're just starting to build the kingdom, and we're, there's a lot of management to go on here. He said, you guys go and finish off Rabbah, which is the capital of Ammon. And he said, I'm just going to stay here, and I'll take care of some office work. So he stayed home. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed, and he walked on the roof of the king's house. Nothing wrong with that. Peter went up on the roof and prayed. David would have been well to pray that day, but he was sightseeing. <laughs> and from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Now, that in itself was not a sin initially. In other words, if you're walking around the roof, and you're just you know, catching uh, some exercise and fresh air, when he observed into somebody's courtyard, evidently, something that he wasn't supposed to see, you know, they build the houses so close in Sacramento, you can look right out of your <laughs> house into someone else's house. And, I mean, uh, you don't need a, a, a camera lens. It's just they're only nine feet away. They just, and some of you know what I'm talking about, these subdivisions now, the houses, you can jump from roof to roof without exercising. <laughs> and uh, so that, that, you know, he saw that. And... I think it's appropriate to spend a moment on this because if you are a Christian and if you want to be pure of heart, in our culture today, uh, things are blatantly out there, doesn't matter if you're a man or woman, sexually suggestive images on television, in the magazines, on the street, yeah, a little more than usual in Hawaii, just because of the weather. So that unless you've made a covenant with your eyes, as Job said, you're going to find it difficult to be pure of heart in this world. Now, noticing that something inappropriate is not the same as sin. Temptation and sin are not the same thing. Jesus was tempted. Jesus never sinned. If you're a healthy individual and you notice something that is sexually provocative that is on the streets, you can say, uh, I recognize what that is, and then choose to look elsewhere. And if you really want to be a follower of Jesus, you are going to face that battle every day, several times a day. If you have a TV, you're going to have to be able to press the off button, change channel, or mute frequently. If you don't have a TV, you're better off except you won't get a lot of our programs. <laughs> but you're better off still not having a TV if you can do that. Yeah, Internet's got its own issues. I heard someone say Internet. It's everywhere you turn. So you've got to do, like Job says, and make a covenant with your eyes. And um, David saw it, but nobody was really around to keep him accountable. He was separated from the army. You know, that's one thing soldiers do. They kind of watch out for each other. But he was off by himself. And, you know, that's one reason I think the Internet is especially uh, dangerous. is because there's the availability of just every type and stripe of sin and very little accountability. Um, and you need to really live and walk with God in this age in which we're at. Well, David saw, but he didn't just look, he gazed, and a glance turned into a lustful look, 
And what started as just, you know, he might have looked to the right, looked to the left and thought, you know, nobody sees me up here. No one's going to know. I'm by myself. Wow. I probably shouldn't be looking. But I'm the king. I can do what I want. I'll repent later. Who knows what he was thinking? But whatever he was thinking, he looked long enough to become infatuated. And then he asked the servant, hey, you know that house that's right up the street here and you can kind of see the courtyard and there's some, some who is that woman? Now, he already had like nine or ten wives at this point. And you would think that uh, that would be enough. But maybe when he first inquired, and because everyone was doing it, he thought, well, one more for the harem, you know. And as soon as they said, that is Bathsheba, the wife, that right there should have sealed the deal and said, oh, okay, forget about it then. She's married. But they said, the wife of Uriah, Uriah, he's out of town on company business. And they're going to be there a while. She's probably lonely. Who knows what he was thinking? Stuff like that. The wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now the word Uriah means fire of Yahweh, a fire of Jehovah. This was a spirit-filled man. When you read the list of David's mighty men, Uriah was in that list. And have you ever read the exploits of David's mighty men? If you didn't believe the Bible was the inspired word of God, some of it seems pretty incredible. I believe it. I mean, there's a whole litany of men that are listed there. That every one of them would have you know, been one per century. Someone who could kill 300 men single-handedly or jump down in a lion's pit and kill the lion or take the spear away from a giant Egyptian and then kill him with his own spear. I mean, just it's one thing after another what these guys did. And they loved David. They were so loyal to David. When they were running from Saul, his army went from 300 to 400 to 600. And they're living in caves and rugged mountains. And they're drinking this bitter water or sulfur water from the deserts and and David one day just with whimsical longing says, oh, if I could just have a drink from that well at Bethlehem. I drank from freely when I was a kid. Sweet, cold, clean, clear, fresh water. And his men loved him so much they heard that and they looked at each other. And the Philistines were occupying Bethlehem at that time. The garrison was there. That's a whole troop of soldiers. Those men, three of them, went. And they fought their way into the city. They, got to, they probably tried to sneak in, but at some point I expect they were discovered. And here they're trying to pull water out of a well for their commander. Two of them are swinging and slashing with their swords. They fight their way out of the city trying to protect this sacred skin of water so they could bring it back to David and say, you wanted a drink? Here's a drink. There they are all cut and bruised and bleeding. That's what they did for David. I mean, should we have less love for Jesus? Who, uh, he wants us to distribute the living water. David realizing, he said, you know, this is not a good precedent. I don't want them to get themselves killed off to bring me a drink. He poured it out on the ground. He said, I don't want to encourage this behavior because you're going to kill yourselves trying to give me a drink. So that's who Uriah was. He might have been one of those three mighty men. Doesn't name them. But that's the kind of love they had for their commander. So what David ends up doing, the wickedness of it is compounded when you consider, it's not just that he took another man's wife. He took the wife of one of his soldiers. He took one, the wife of a soldier who was ready to die for him. So he sent a messenger. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. You know, Bathsheba came to the house. And probably better that we don't know exactly how that all unfolded, but David being not only a brave, strong soldier, the Bible said he was good-looking, he was also a musician and a writer and a poet. She didn't stand a chance. Husband's out of town. Now, some people have made it sound like David raped her. It doesn't say that. It would have if that's what happened. But... He really, he slew her another way. 
and uh, took advantage of her. She was an accomplice. In any event, a little while later, she sends a message and said, uh, I am with child. Now again, I don't want to get distracted, but for those who have a hard time believing that life begins at conception, the Bible's pretty clear on this. Amen. She didn't say, I've got a growth. Amen. Right? And I'm not trying to come down too heavy on this because statistically there are people here who have had abortions. And praise the Lord, he forgives. But at least be honest. You've got to acknowledge that human life is sacred. We're made in the image of God. Life begins at conception. I know there's a lot of difficult political issues connected with it. But uh, let's at least be upfront about it. You're going to get in trouble if you start saying anything other than life begins at conception. She says, I'm with child. Now, David, he's pretty smart. And he starts to project what this means. And he thinks, well, you know, some babies come early. If I can get Uriah home really quick, she's not that far along. They may not ask any questions. And uh, so he sends for Uriah. And he's mingling now just not only the sin of adultery, he's mingling it with deception and deceit. And David sent Joab, and he said, send me Uriah the Hittite. He probably said urgent, quickly. And Joab, obedient, he sends Uriah to David. And when Uriah had come to David, he said, how's, uh, how's Joab doing? And uh, how's the battle going? And t tell me how things are transpiring. And Joab, obviously, as one of David's mighty men, he had men underneath him. Because at this point, David is in charge of the kingdom, and all of his mighty men sort of got cabinet positions. So Uriah probably has a whole troop of soldiers under him. How does the war prosper? Well, if he had gone to battle with his men like he was supposed to, he would know how the war was prospering. But here you've got a king who's disconnected from his soldiers. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house, wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king. He was dismissed. And a gift of food. He said, look, I'm going to have the royal caterers. They're going to bring you some food. Matter of fact, we're going to have musicians outside your window. We're going to try and create ambiance for you. So that you will do what you're supposed to do when you come home. And you're married to Bathsheba, no less. And you've been out of town for a while. But the most incredible thing is Uriah doesn't go to his house. Verse 9, Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. Now, I, always, I probably lose votes when I ask this question, but you've got to ask this question. I just like to ask the ladies. How many of you would be understanding if your husband, forget about what's happened with David and Bathsheba. Let's assume nothing had happened. Your husband's been off at battle with a bunch of stinking men out in the field fighting. You've gotten very little mail probably. No text messages, no Skype back then. They're about 30 miles away, which is a long way back then. And he comes home, and you get flowers that come from the king with this beautifully prepared meal. And all the fruit is cut to look like flowers. <laughs> you know, and you can hear the musicians are outside the window strumming and playing. And Uriah is not there, and she understands that Uriah has come home, but he's sleeping in the barracks by the palace. How many of you would understand that? That is the difference. Well, of course, it depends how you and your husband are getting along. <laughs> Some of you might be happy for him to stay with the soldiers. But um, that's the difference between men and women. Uriah had made a vow. I believe he had made a vow. A lot of soldiers made vows. You remember the vow of Jephthah? Lord, if you give me victory... First thing that comes out of the gates of my house is an offering to you. Now, he anticipated 
that it would be, you know, they had these kind of, they had little ranches back then, and I used to have goats, and I'd come home, and the goats would come out and meet you. And the sheep and the cow, and they all think you're going to feed them, they all come out and meet you. And he was going to offer sheep, goat, cow, oxen, anything that came out of his gates, whatever came out first, was an offering. He didn't expect his daughter. And they had the vow of the Nazarite. And different, different soldiers would make these vows. You often see this through the Bible. I believe Uriah had made a vow. And it's not uncommon for soldiers to make a vow of abstinence from women while they're in battle. Do you remember when David went to the uh, tabernacle when he was fleeing from Saul and he asked if he could have the sacred bread? And you know what the priest asked him? Have you kept yourself from women? Because when soldiers were engaged in battle, they used to say, they, and you know, it's a superstition, but they felt they were more virile and they were more fighting if they maintained their masculinity and their drive. And that was the belief. And so, Uriah, being an example to his men, had told his men, I've got to bring a message. And he said, don't worry, men. I'm going to keep my vow. I'm going to deliver the message. I'm coming back because I'm going to be an example for you. I'm not going to demoralize you by coming back, telling you what a wonderful time I had staying in a five-star hotel with Bathsheba, relaxing while you were all here sleeping in these you know, stinking tents out there on the front lines of some besiegement. So he had made a vow. That's my belief. I think there's support for it. And, and David says, he's incredulous. Why didn't you go home? Now think about the difference between the soldier and the king. The soldier who has a right, he has every right to go and stay in Bathsheba's house. He maintains self-control. He denies his passions. He denies the ease of his own bed and his own shower and the companionship of his wife because he said, the first thing is God. And the one who doesn't have a right, David, he takes what is not his. Wow, what a contrast. Now, there's only one sentence that Uriah speaks in the whole Bible. This is it. We're getting ready to read it. Uriah gets one verse, but it speaks volumes, in my opinion. David says, he's, he's incredulous. In verse 10, he says, did you not come from your journey? Why did you not go down to your house? He almost tips his hand at that time. I mean, David's got a problem on his hands now, doesn't he? His plan has completely flopped. And by the way, there's a message there for us. Sometimes we think that we can connive our way out of accountability with God. Sometimes we think we're smarter than God. David was smart. By the way, Bathsheba was smart. I don't want anyone here to think that Bathsheba was just some pretty bimbo, pardon me, that, that she was just some empty-headed beauty. You know who her grandfather was? The wisest counselor in David's kingdom, Ahithophel, was the grandfather of Bathsheba. Who was Bathsheba's son that survived? Solomon. How smart was he? I don't think all of it came from David's side. Some of it came from the Spirit of the Lord, but I think he had some raw materials to work with. And that Bathsheba was beautiful and intelligent. You listen to Bathsheba when she intercedes with David at the end when there's this attempted coup over the kingdom. She's smart. She articulates herself well. David can't understand why Uriah doesn't go. And listen to what he says in verse 11. Uriah said to David, The ark... What is the first words out of his mouth? What's in the ark? The law of God. Whose presence hovered above the ark? Have you ever thought about the central focus of the ark? I, I've actually borrowed this, but I never forgot it because I thought it was a good illustration. You know, on the planet, you've got the Holy Land, which is Israel. And in the Holy Land, you've got the Holy Mount, Mount Zion or Mount Moriah. And on the holy mountain, you have the holy temple. And on the holy temple, you've got the holy place. And then, deeper still, the holy of holies. And in the holy of holies is the holy ark. And in the holy ark, you've got the law of God. 
Surrounded by gold are these two rocks. And on those two rocks, you've got the word holy one time. And that's the Sabbath commandment. And the first words out of Uriah's mouth is the ark. Because they used to take the ark with them into battle. That's how it got captured by the Philistines. Temple hadn't been built yet. And the priest would often go and he'd intercede. By the way, you know what else the priest would do? The priest would say before he let the soldiers go into battle, if there are any of you here and you're scared, go home. Doesn't Jesus say any man who puts his hand to the plow and looks back, he's not worthy of the kingdom? If we're going to follow Jesus, we don't want to turn back. We don't want to turn your back to the enemy. You know, there's a story in the Bible uh, when David's talking about his mighty men, and one of his mighty men in particular was Eliezer, the son of Dodo. It's hard to forget that. <laughs> it's not the Dodo. It was Eliezer was his name. And it tells about how they got into a battle with the Philistines. And the army of Israel retreated because they were so grossly outnumbered. But Eliezer stationed himself with David on a high spot in a field of barley. And they fought against the Philistines that surrounded them. And almost like Samson, they slew this whole contingent of Philistines, when the rest of the army retreated, David and Eliezer would not retreat. They stood their ground. And eventually the army came back and joined them. And they got the victory that day because when everybody retreated, David and Eliezer would not retreat. So the priests, they'd take the ark into battle and the priest would say, whoever's afraid. He would also say, if you've built a house but you haven't lived in it, go on home. Lest you die in the battle, you might die in the battle. And someone else lives in your house that you haven't dedicated yet. Or if you've planted a vineyard, but you haven't eaten fruit of it yet, you might want to go home. God gave his people an easy out. Or he said, um, if you've married a wife, if you betrothed to a wife, but you've not had your honeymoon. By the way, you were supposed to have one year off after you got married, free from any business, including war, to nurture your relationship with your spouse. So when people went into battle, the whole idea was, if you have any second thoughts, then you're not fit for this army. Did you catch that? If you're going to go into battle in God's army, if you're second-guessing yourself all the time, then you're in the wrong place. You've got to know. It's like you know, one of the verses you can't forget is John 666. <laughs> the Gospel of John chapter 6, verse 66. Jesus made some difficult statements and most of the people stopped following him and he said to the disciples, will you at this time forsake me? And you know what they said? Where are we going to go? And we made up our minds to follow you. We're not turning back. So Uriah was committed. He said, I am not going to get distracted from the battle. You've ordered me to come home and to deliver a message. I'm following orders, but I'm not going to my house because I'm more interested in God's house. Did you get that? Wasn't the ark supposed to be in God's house? So Uriah's heart was with the ark, because that was the presence of God. Where's your kingdom? What priority does God and his work have in your life? First words out of his mouth, the ark. And then the second words, and Israel. God and his people. You know, the two great commandments are, love the Lord, with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, love your neighbor. Cross is all about this love relationship and this love relationship. Whenever I do that, I always feel a little bit papal. <laughs> but it's really what it is. The cross is about a vertical love relationship, isn't it? Love the Lord with all your heart and love your neighbor. Horizontal love relationship. First things out of Uriah's mouth was the ark. That's God. And Israel, the people of God. Love the Lord. Love your neighbor, and he came last. The ark in Israel and Judah. That was more specifically his tribe, his family. You know what's amazing? I, I forgot to tell you. Uriah is called Uriah the what? They don't call him Uriah the mighty man. He was one of the mighty men, but they call him a Hittite. You know what that means? He, by blood, was not even a Jew. 
But here he's passionate about the tribe of Judah. <laughs> you know, it's interesting how people who are into sports, as they move from town to town, what team they choose to adopt, basically because of what town they've now moved to. They may not know anybody on the team or know much about the sport, but they find themselves rooting for whatever their hometown recently was or the new one it becomes. He aligned himself so thoroughly with God's people. Have you ever noticed converts are sometimes more passionate about the message than people who are raised in Israel? Uriah was a convert. But his name, Fire of God. He took a new name. Hittites were a minority. They sprang from an ancient warlike people that lived up in the area of Turkey. And Judah, Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents. The ark was still on a tent. The temple wasn't built. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord, now he thinks about his fellow servants. They are encamped. You know, one of the um, things that stays with me is as I travel, just last month I went to, I felt like I've been around the world uh, in about a month. I guess it's been a little more than a month. Flew to the Middle East, flew to uh, Dubai, preached in the United Arab Emirates in about four different towns in six days, ten times. Yeah. Flew from there to Indonesia, spent another two weeks there doing revivals and evangelism, and um, then drove up to the university there four hours each way <laughs> just so I could speak to 20 theology students. But you get a perspective that this is a worldwide work. And Uriah was not only thinking about what was happening in his house, he was thinking about what was happening in the mission field. That God's soldiers were out there on the field and the battle wasn't won. And he was restless to get back to the front lines. You know one of the hardest things for some soldiers? They get a minor injury and they send them to the infirmary. And you think that they would be so thankful to be off the field of battle, but you know what the typical answer is of those soldiers? I miss my buddies. One of the hardest things, you remember the, that picture of the flag being raised on Iwo Jima? And uh, they, they took those soldiers and sent them on a tour to you know, try and sell the war effort. And one of the hardest things for those soldiers, they said, we don't want to be doing this, we want to be back with our comrades fighting the war. They felt so useless, just involved in propaganda and photo ops. Their heart was on the front lines with their friends that they knew were still struggling. They felt more comfortable being in the trenches with their friends fighting the battle. Are you trying to get out of the battle? Are you trying to get back into it? If we're soldiers in God's army, we need to pray God will give us that fire that Uriah had. That we want to be part of that battle. He said, shall I then go to my house to eat and drink? Now, eating and drinking are important. We're going to be doing it in a little while. I haven't forgotten. <laughs> but um, what time was that again I'm supposed to quit? Huh? 545? 525? 5.35. 5.30? Did anyone say 5.15? Can I have a 5.10? <laughs> I better hurry up. This is going to be a two-part message, part two tomorrow. He wanted to be on the front lines. They were encamped in the mission field. 2 Timothy 2, verse 3 and 4. You, therefore, must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, no one engages in warfare, entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he might please him who has enlisted him as a soldier. Uriah was thinking, look, David, you've sent me on a mission to fight and win a battle. We fought with you for years. The battle's still going on. We haven't conquered the capital of the enemy. I'm not going home right now and get entangled. I'm going to stay on the front lines. There'll be the time to go home and to relax. 
By the way, you know one of the big differences between men and women? Women are often more relationship-oriented. Men are more, generally speaking, task-oriented. I realize there are exceptions, but it's pretty well proven. And men are often ridiculed for being so oblivious to relationships and so focused on tasks. But I kind of think God made men and women the way we are so that we complement each other and become a whole by combining the two. But that means there is a time to be task-oriented. And one time would be if you're in the middle of a war not to get so distracted with the relationships at home that you forget about the front lines. There is a time to be task-oriented. Did you know that we have a task right now? We have a mission. Jesus has given us some marching orders. So David, he doesn't know the stuff that Uriah is made of. He thinks, I'll drug him. He will lose his self-control. And David says, Uriah, well, I tell you what, you stay one more day. I'm writing out some messages for Joab. I'm not quite done yet. I'm paraphrasing. Wait here also tomorrow, and I'll let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and he stays in the barracks of the palace. Now when David called him, he says, look, Uriah, you eat at my table. We're, you know, mighty men. We're friends. Remember those days when we ran from Saul? And, and they start to eat and drink and reminisce about the good old days. Remember this experience, that battle? And they had lots to talk about. They could exchange wounds and, and stories. Have a drink. Have some wine. Now, back in Bible days, bottles and wineskins were not printed with how many proof was on the skin. There was a real nebulous line between what was fresh and what was fermented. And he started slipping Uriah the strong stuff. He said, hey, let's, let's drink to Joab and the men in the field. And to be polite, Uriah had a drink. He said, now let's, let's toast this soldier, that soldier. I don't know what he was doing, but he got him to drink. And to be polite, he accepted. You know, I remember when I went to Russia, they kept giving me beet soup. And you want to be, you know, some of you probably love it, but to be polite, I ate it. I finally developed a taste for it. But first few times, I was just being polite. Jesus said, eat whatsoever things are set before you, right? And so Uriah is being polite. And then he says, uh, here's another catering meal, and he expects that he's going to go, and he made him drink, and he made him drunk. You know, one reason that uh, gentlemen, they're not necessarily gentlemen, will try and get a young lady to have a drink or two on a date is because typically those kind of drugs will lower your reason-making reason parts of your brain, your resistance to temptation. Christians shouldn't drink any alcohol ever. And that's coming from someone who did not grow up in the church. And made him drunk. And at evening he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. He was so committed, it was so ingrained in him, that there was nothing that David could do to turn him away. Have you ever read Fox's Book of Martyrs? You've got to read it in little pieces. It's heavy stuff. You can read it for free online. It's, a, it's a, an ancient uh, text, public domain. But you read about what some of these people went through to take a stand for the truth and under torture, how they would not give in to the message. They would not sacrifice their beliefs. A few little words would set them free and make the pain stop. And some lost faith, but so many died rather than deny the Lord. He would not go down to his house. In the morning... David wrote a letter to Joab, and he sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set Uriah at the forefront of the hottest battle, and then leave him there. Retreat from him, that he might be struck and die. So Uriah delivers a message. It's a sealed scroll. 
Joab takes it and probably right there in Uriah's presence, he's anxious to know. He doesn't think he's hiding anything from Uriah. But he unfolds the message and he starts to read it and he turns the back of it to Uriah. When he reads it, and he reads it again. He reads it a third time. I mean, he knew Uriah. He's one of the mighty men. It's not hard to remember these men who you've worked and fought with for all these years. But Joab, without question, he decides to obey David. He figures there must be a reason. He's never had a bad order from David. He doesn't know what's going on, but he obeys. And Joab spies a place against the walls of the city where he knows the strongest, bravest, most accurate fighters of the Ammonites are stationed. And he says, look, Uriah, we've got this new tactic we're trying out. I want you and your platoon to charge the gates. We'll cover you with the archers, or something like that. And he gives the order, and they were told to storm the gates and maybe try and breach the walls somehow or break through the gates. And, and they stormed the walls. But instead of providing cover, as Uriah and his men charged forward, Joab told the archers, don't fire. Don't protect them. Leave them exposed. David said, retreat from him that they might be struck. And Uriah, when he first got these orders, I suspect you fought that many battles, you know something about strategy. He knew that this was a suicide mission. Because even when Joab then reports about the death of Uriah, he knew that David would become incensed and think, what kind of crazy mission was this? And Uriah went into that battle. He obeyed an order from his commander that would result in death. He had the fire of God. What does it say in Revelation about the saints? They love not their lives even unto death. You know, someone might ask you, or they might ask me, are you prepared to die for your faith? You know what Moody used to say? Not now, but I trust that if that day comes, God will give me the strength then. And, uh, but we develop a pattern now. Uriah had developed a pattern of obeying God and putting God first in everything. And then the other thing we learn about him, he had self-control. Uriah had control over his passions, didn't he? You know, I think in this day and age, um, especially, where there, there has never been a time of, in history, especially in the United States, and I haven't forgotten you're part of the United States here, where we have... There's never been a people where there's been more abundance of everything. Not only abundance of time, abundance of food, abundance of entertainment. And if you don't have self-control, and it, it even it bleeds over into the little things of life. It's so hard to be a soldier in God's army. I'll be saying more about this tomorrow in, in the message there about not turning back. But... Um, I think Uriah went down fighting. He got an order. He, they probably started to fire from the wall. And when Joab's men did not give them cover, they opened the gates. They sent out their bravest soldiers to fight right then and there with him. And rather than retreat, he stood his ground, as he had been told, and he went down swinging. We always talk about David and Bathsheba, and we forget the hero of the story is Uriah. What an incredible man. That would put God first like that. The Bible says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might. You know, you, you probably have heard this many times, but it's one of my favorite quotes from the Spirit of Prophecy. In Education, page 57, the greatest want of the world is the want of men. And of course, that's inclusive of everybody. People of God, servants of God. Men who will not be bought or sold, men who in their inmost souls are true and honest, men who do not fear to call sin by the right name, men whose conscience is as true to duty as the needle is to the pole, men who will stand for the right though the heavens fall. God is looking for those kind of people in his army that will have that fire of God, that will have that self-control, that will have those priorities in their lives of saying, first the ark of God the people of God, the mission of God. 
and putting their own personal comfort and needs and satisfaction, not at the top of the list like typically we find, but at the bottom of the list, putting God first. That's what I, uh, that's what I admire about Uriah, and that's the kind of experience I want, where God and his work are first. There, there, there's the appropriate times for vacations. There's the appropriate time. We've, you know, Jesus had come aside and rest a while. There's that time too. But we need to keep our vows to God and keep that mission a priority. That's my desire. I trust that's your desire, friends. If it is, why don't we just stand? Let's pray together and, and ask him to bless. And as this Sabbath approaches, just pray for the outpouring of his spirit that we might have that fire of Jehovah, that Uriah in our hearts and minds. Loving Lord, we're, we're inspired and we're humbled as we look at the dedication of your mighty men. Lord, I pray that uh, each person here, that you might give us the courage and the singleness of mind to put our hands to the plow and not look back. Help us to make that covenant to keep your work, your mission, your battle as the priority in our lives. We believe that your last words to go and tell the world should be a first priority for believers. Help us to keep it that way, Lord. We know that without your spirit, we can do nothing. We pray for the baptism of the Holy Spirit on this entire army camp experience, on all of the presentations in each person's life. Lord, you've promised that if we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. The very fact that these people have assembled is an indication they're drawing near to you. So we want to claim your part of the promise, Lord, that you'll draw near to us. Help us to sense your presence. And especially during these, just these beautiful sacred hours, beautiful day, beautiful place, that your presence will be here. Lord, we just uh, pray that as the Sabbath hours approach, that we'll really experience that rest and that outpouring of the Spirit. Uh, bless us in our fellowship. Help us be conscious to keep this time holy in our words with each other. And that all we do will bring glory to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.